Okay, let's continue with the axial skeleton. And last time we were describing some of the cranial bones. Um, the temporal bone is the next. And temporal bone is point of reference. This is where the hearing organ is, the ear. The auditory canal is the bony part. Is called the external acoustic meatus. External acoustic meatus, and that's the hole that we see right here. And as I said, two temporals that are left and right. It has a region which is called a squamous region because it's, it's kind of thin and um, has the appearance of a shell. And two important markings here. The mastoid region, which contains a mastoid process. We can see it here and also here. The mastoid process. The mastoid process can be felt. If you pass your finger behind the ear, you feel like a bony thing there. Mastoid process. That is called mastoid process. And it comes from the, from the prefix, the word mast. That means actually breast. So it's kind of like a little prominence. Yeah, this, this guy had a rich imagination when he gave names to some parts of the bones. So mastoid process. And the importance of this mastoid process is that, especially in children, we see a problem called mastoiditis. Children with chronic ear infections especially may turn into mastoiditis. How come? Well, here inside is a hearing organ, so if there are infections inside, it will spread to this area of the bone. It may be really uh, dangerous sometimes. The parietal bones. Parietal bones are in the very top of the skull. Two, again, paired bones. They are connected in the midline by the sagittal suture. The sagittal suture connects both parietal bones. But the parietal bones are also connected to the frontal bone by means of the coronal suture here. Parietal bones is very easy. There's no bone markings here. can't describe a parietal eminence, temporal line, but those are minor minor details to describe. Um, it's very straightforward. The other bone is the occipital, which is posterior. Posterior skull bone. And the most uh, relevant marking is called the foramen or foramen magnum. Magnum, that stands for large and it's a big hole that's what it means that hole is for the spinal cord that's where the brain connects to the spinal cord at that point we have parts of the nervous system like the medulla oblongata connecting to the spinal cord that runs in the spine and two articular surfaces called occipital condyles. They are going to articulate or rest on the first vertebra, the first cervical vertebra, which is called the atlas. 
we'll see later how this, these two bones interact and get together and what type of movement they provide. And besides these markings, we have some lines and uh, protuberance, which is another type of process or projection. The external occipital protuberance, which can also be felt here. If you pass your finger down below, I mean behind the head, you will find a bony prominence in the midline. And then it goes into a kind of depression. It's not a depression, it's a prominence of the occipital bone that makes it look like that. That's important because, again, children, when we measure the head circumference, we need to put the metric tape here, the frontal bone, and find the external protuberance and pass the metric tape at that level. That's the point of reference for making or taking that measurement in, in children. And that's important thing for the development of, of children. We can monitor how the head is growing and the brain and all everything in the cranium. The ethmoid bone is only one, it's not paired, and it's in the very central part of the skull. If you get the skull here, the ethmoid projection is right there. You cannot see it from outside. In the skulls, you will not see it from outside unless you make a section, like sagittal section, or disarticulate all the bones and individualize the ethmoid bone. And in that case, you will see it like this. And there are different markings. The markings that can be seen from inside the cranial cavity, if we open this, we will see part of the ethmoid are the crista galli and the craviform plate. Just very small regions there uh, behind to the frontal bone. We see that more, more of that in the lab when we get this part next week. And don't forget the ethmoidal cells, which are inside the bone. Um, again, you will not be able to see them unless you get the ethmoid bone and study the individual bone. Now is the turn for the facial bones. Following this diagram, we are able to do this and divide all the bones of the cranium and the bones of the face. In this case, most of them are paired, right and left, except two, the mandible and the vomer. Some of these bones are really small and they are internal. And again, they cannot be seen from outside unless we make a section or see the skull from the inferior view or posterior view. The colored skulls, uh, the colored skulls help for this because and we have some of them in the lab. You can disassemble them, you can put them back and have an idea where they are or each individual bone, how it can be seen from different, from different views. Let's talk about the mandible. One of the bones that is not paired. Some markings to um, highlight here. One of them is the mandibular condyle. Mandibular condyle. This round prominence or projection that articulates with the temporal bone. 
this joint is called temporomandibular joint or also known as TMJ. This is the point of the joint that allows us to move the mandible, I mean to open the mouth. And this joint can be felt also here in front of the ear. Put your finger here and open your mouth and you will feel the, con the, the mandibular condyle move anteriorly. And there's a little space there, empty space, so that's where the mandibular condyle is. And uh, sometimes people have pain here, especially when they have disalignments or when they apply some braces and teeth and there's done some symmetry initially. There may be some pain here because of the disalignment, but then it gets readjusted. Another uh, marking to emphasize is a coronary process, which is just anterior to the mandibular process. We cannot feel this here, but it is an important marking because from here we have an important muscle called the temporalis muscle, which is a muscle of mastication or chewing. Thanks to these muscles, we can bring the mandible up and down like this, so we can chew. And when you bite, put your finger, your hand here on both sides, you bite, you can feel the muscle contracting there when you bite. That's the temporalis muscle that attaches to the coronary process. Another uh, marking here is the mandibular foramen. The mandibular foramen. That is an internal part of the ramus of the mandible. And it's a foramen because there's a nerve coming in. This nerve is going to innervate or provide sensitivity. We'll count this nerve in this way. It's called the mandibular nerve. Provide sensitivity to the lower teeth. So if it's the right side, it will provide sensitivity to the lower teeth until here. This is the nerve that the dentists like to block when they give you anesthesia. If you remember some work, dental work here on the lower teeth, the dentist put a finger inside and look for something here in your mouth. And put the finger there and then put the needle right to the finger. Or they are finding that mandibular foramen. They can touch it actually. Um, there's a bunny prominence right next to it. And that's when they have to give the anesthesia. So if your anesthesia is good, that means your dentist studies his anatomy very well and knows how to identify that place. If the anesthesia doesn't work, probably it's not feeling that well and trying to guess. And if it works, fine. If it doesn't work, well, probably give more. But you can tell that all this part is anesthetized. Your teeth and also the skin of this part. Because that same nerve gives branches to innervate all this part of the skin of the lower teeth. And this is a place where all the uh, teeth are um, uh, attached to this mandibular uh, bone. The maxillary bone, we can call it maxillary bone or maxilla, is a place where all the upper teeth are. The upper teeth and the maxilla has some other important markings like orbital surface because the floor of the orbit right there where your eyeball is resting that's a surface that belongs to this maxillary bone sometimes when people have uh, accidents or uh, car accidents motorcycle accidents or boxers and they start 
this they see they have double vision they have double vision after the the, the 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 accident and that may be because this maxilla is broken the floor of the orbit is broken so one of the eyes are it's dropping like this so there's a disalignment and you see double just temporarily there's another foramen here called the infraorbital foramen and that's where another nerve comes out that nerve to innervate this part of the face this is another painful point the people that have uh, uh, headaches or migraines sometimes again remember we mentioned the one here on the frontal bone there's another one here the infraorbital foramen right there where that nerve is coming out you apply some pressure there you may feel some weird sensation exquisite pain sometimes um, because you're compressing that nerve uh, going through the infraorbital foramen and there are some processes like the frontal process these processes in the maxilla they have the name related to the bone that they connect to like the frontal process is a prominence that connects to the frontal bone. There's another one, zygomatic process, because it connects to the zygomatic bone, which is the bone of the cheek right here. The maxilla is here in the face, anterior, and the cheek, the zygomatic bone, is a different bone. And here we have the zygomatic bone, just that. This zygomatic bone connects, as you see here, the colored skull with the temporal bone, with the frontal bone, and with the sphenoid bone, the green square, also to the maxilla. In the frontal view, we can see some of these bones, facial bones, and some of them, as I said, they are small, like the nasal bones. The nasal bones are two rectangular pieces that are in the bridge of the nose up here, connecting to the frontal bone, like the root of the nose. This part is bone, that's the nasal bones. And then after, it's cartilage. The nose is bone initially in the root, but then the rest is just cartilage. The lacrimal bones are other bones that are very small. And they are in the medial aspect of the orbit. The space where the eyeballs are and medial wall, there's a little square and that's called the lacrimal bone. Then the ethmoid is inside, is behind, the very center. The vomer, this is the other single bone, not pair, as well as the mandible. Where is the vomer? The vomer is part of the nasal septum. There is a, a wall that divides the, net, the nose, the nasal cavity in right and left. And in the septum, the wall that divides both sides, that's where the vomer is. Yes? Yeah, in most of the cases, it's just the cartilage because the vomer is the one that is bone, but it's really posterior. Anteriorly, there are two more cartilages. And usually those cartilages are the ones that dislocate and deviate the septum. And usually they do it as reduce it. They just put it back to the initial stage and stabilize it, and that's it. 
The nasal cavity is determined by all these facial bones. And um, this is a sagittal section in the midline. And we can see the lateral wall. This is a view of the lateral wall of the skull, considering all these bones. And another bone that is shown in green here is called inferior nasal concha or concha. It's a bone, it's a single bone, or actually paired, but um, it, it is connected to the nasal wall, to the wall of the nasal uh, cavity. We see the nasal bone in blue. We see the edmoid bone in orange here. We see the maxillary bone in purple. And the palatine, the palatine bone, it's very posterior. It's part of the palate, of the palate, the roof of the oral, the mouth, the oral cavity. That bony part is uh, provided by maxillary bone and palatine bone. And in this view, we can see the vomer much better. The vomer is part of the septum. It goes in this way. The ethmoid is also part of the septum. This is part of the ethmoid bone. This is the vomer. The ethmoid bone has this perpendicular plate, it's called, which is part of the nasal septimals. And anteriorly, we have cartilage. So all this that I'm shading here is cartilage. And that makes the, completes the nasal septum. Vomer, ethmoid, and the nasal cartilage, the septum cartilage. Okay, so this was just some highlightings, um, and uh, we'll get the chance to see all these bones much better in the lab, individual bones, and as part of the sagittal sections or uh, complete skulls. Let's go to the vertebral column. The vertebral column is composed by individual bones that are one on top of the other, called vertebrae. The vertebrae, the general structure of a vertebrae is like this. These are markings that are present in most of the vertebrae. They all have the same markings, some exceptions. And those are the vertebral body or vertebral body, the spinous process, this, by the way, is a transverse section of one of the vertebrae. Spinous process is posterior. This is posterior and this is anterior. And the spinous process is that part that you can touch in your back. And if you give massage to someone and touch the midline and pass your finger in this way, you feel like bony prominences, one below another. Well, you are touching the spinous processes of each vertebrae. And there are two transverse processes that are connected to the two arches and it will determine the vertebral foramen here. Well, these bridges of bone are called the lamina and the pedicle. Those are just the connections. 
of the body with the transverse process, which is this. This is transverse process. The pedicle connects the vertebral body to the uh, transverse process. And the lamina connects the transverse process to the spinous process. That's how they are described. Both, all of them, they form an arch that surrounds the spinal cord completely, providing protection, of course. All these, all these processes, most of them are for connection of small tendons and muscles of the back. Yeah. What was the F again? Was that? Oh, the F? That's a, a, a vertebral foramen. Vertebral foramen. So those markings are present in most of the vertebrae, except probably except one. And there are all these vertebrae connect to each other. Uh, if we want to, if you like the numbers and want to count, there are 19 plus 5 that makes 24. Um, and considering the sacrum, which are five, well, what is important to remember the numbers of each segment. The first segment is called cervical, and cervical vertebrae are here. There are seven. They all look very like, they're very the same. We differentiate them by numbers, starting from the top, and we call them C1, C2, C3, C4, and so until C7. The next segment is thoracic, where these vertebrae are called thoracic vertebrae, and they are uh, named with the letter T and the number from T1 to T12. Next segment is lumbar, composed by five lumbar vertebrae, from L1 to L5. And sacrum and coccyx and sacrum and coccyx, which are individual bones, as we see in the diagram. We count sacrum as one, coccyx as one. But if you see, these bones are the result of fusion of small vertebrae at the very final part or distal part of the vertebral column. Seven, twelve, and five. That's the sequence cervical, thoracic, and lumbar. So if we see all these vertebrae, on one on top of the other, and figure all the foramina of each individual vertebrae, they will form a canal. So that's what we see here. The spinal cord is found running in that canal. We can see how these vertebrae look from a lateral view, from a transverse section, in the picture below. We see the spinal cord and we see the spinal nerves coming out of the spinal cord. We see the spinous processes, which are posterior, the body of the vertebrae, or vertebral body, anteriorly. And one thing that is evident here is the presence of this blue Pads, which are called intervertebral discs, fibrocartilage, 
We give that as an example in tissues. It is cartilage, fibrocartilage, and the purpose is to support the body weight, work as a shock absorber. In the picture below, we can see a transverse section where we identify all these markings that we describe spinous process, posterior, transverse process, lateral, vertebral body, anterior, and the connections called the pedicle and the lamina. And we see the spinal cord running in the vertebral foramen. A different view of the intervertebral discs, which we said it's made of fibrocartilage, and it's a very good shock absorber. These intervertebral discs, they are fibrocartilage, they are uh, very fibrous uh, tissue, very resistant, but in the central part of this disc, if we just remove it and, and see it, the very central part is like a gel. It's like a gelatin. And uh, it makes very much sense, a lot of sense, if we think about the function of this. It's absorb the shock, support the body weight, and it's actually a very good pad, very soft, that will uh, work very well to resist all the body weight. But sometimes this is what happens. That central part of the fibrocartilage is called nucleus pulposus. It's like a gelatin. It's exactly like a gelatin. <coughs> and uh, the fibrocartilage is actually in the shape of a ring. That's the fibrocartilage. All the fibers like a ring around it. And we call that annulus fibrosus, this fibrocartilage <coughs> ring. And in the center, this nucleus pulposus is like a gelatin. Well, sometimes that annulus fibrosus of the intervertebral disc, it is compressed by excessive forces, and it breaks. And it breaks, and you see how this gelatin protrudes. It's bulging out through the, through the rupture of the, of the fibrocartilage, and start compressing the spinal nerve that is coming out of the spinal cord at that point. And that's commonly called pinched nerve. Very frequent in the lumbar segment of the vertebral column. And that's why there's a lot of uh, uh, advice and uh, instruction for people that have to deal with this every day, like lifting weights or by occupational risk, because they have to be lifting uh, heavy boxes, they have to do it following certain procedures, taking good care and with some supportive devices sometimes to prevent this type of problem. But if this thing happens, the nerve may be um, compressed. And the consequence is pain and uh, lack of sensitivity, feel numb, or even loss of the function of nerves that are running to the lower limbs. Now in this view, we see the vertebral column and how it changes in shape during life. 
from the fetal stage, newborn, until adults. See the different colors, the different segments, cervical, thoracic, lumbar. In the fetus and newborn, it's just like a C. Just like a C. But then, in adults, we have a cervical with this curve, thoracic with this in this direction, the lumbar in this direction, and the sacrum in this direction. So all these curves, they go developing during lifetime as long as we keep growing and then start walking, running, adopting the final standing position. And the curvatures, the different curvatures, they are adapted according to the uh, type of motion and muscle development and all. So normally, this is, these are the curvatures. The cervical curve, or cervical vertebrae, are curved in this way. Let's exaggerate this a little bit, like this. And then the thoracic vertebrae, they have a thoracic curve in the other direction, like this. And the lumbar, this way. Let's put it here. And the sacrum and coccyx in the other way. So that's how the curves are organized. Cervical and lumbar are convex and the thoracic and sacral concave in different directions. There are some problems although. Excessive curvatures of the spine if the thoracic segment has an excessive curvature, that is called kyphosis. And that happens, I think we mentioned osteoporosis in the previous chapter, and we saw how individuals, they look like shrinking because of the osteoporosis, the vertebrae collapse, and the kyphosis is one of the things that we can see. Exaggerated thoracic curvature. Lower doses is an exaggeration of the lumbar curvature, which sometimes is congenital, or maybe because of problems uh, in the constitution of the vertebral column. These are exaggerated curves. Normally, the lumbar segment is curving that way, but if that curve is exaggerated, we call that lower doses. And this one is called scoliosis because it's a lateral curvature. It's supposed to be just straight. But for different reasons, and one of the reasons is congenital predisposition, but following that may be different types of problems in the muscles development or sometimes posture problems that get chronic and uh, may end up with scoliosis. There are programs of early detection of scoliosis in schools because if it's detected early, they can be corrected. It can be corrected. Otherwise, if they grow up like that, what's in the thorax, the lungs? They're supposed to be the same size. If this is not corrected, the lung of this side will be like that and the lung of the other side will be this size. They may bring respiratory problems long term. We saw that picture. That's osteoporosis and the kypho kyphosis here, exaggerated thoracic curvature. 
One of the things that you have to do in the in this part in the lab working with the bones is to learn to differentiate the three different types of vertebrae. There are three different types um, that belong to each of the segments: cervical vertebrae, thoracic vertebrae, and lumbar. Uh, uh, in the lab exam, in second lab exam, one of the questions is for sure you will find vertebrae on your station and you should be able to tell which vertebrae belongs to which segment, cervical, thoracic, or lumbar. So there are some clues. There are some clues that you have to look for, some markings that you need to identify and look quick. One of them is there is one bone marking that is present only in cervical vertebrae. And that is a transverse foramen. It is located in the transverse process. You will find a hole in both sides. If you find that, that is cervical. No matter if it looks like a thoracic, it's uh, not sure. You find the transverse foramen, that's cervical. No other choice. The other thing, or the other... Um, feature to compare is regarding the lumbar, the lumbar vertebrae, the body is the largest of all three. If you see the lumbar vertebrae from a lateral view, you will see the spinous process short and wide. Comparing with the thoracic where the spinous process is long, and pointing downwards. Now there is a transition when the cervical vertebrae turn into thoracic, like C7 and T1, they look alike very much. You may be confused because the spinous process in the cervical, like C7, is very long and downwards. But again, as I said, if you see transverse foramen, that is cervical, no doubt. And one thing that differentiates the thoracic vertebrae is that they have, in the transverse processes, they have this marking called transverse costal facet, which is a disc, smooth surface, because that's where the ribs are going to connect. The thoracic vertebrae, they all connect to ribs. So if you find that facet in the transverse process, that is a thoracic vertebrae. Those are the main markings to differentiate among the different, the three types. There are other markings that are labeled here and you will have to see that in the lab, but those are the ones that you should be able to identify and differentiate. <coughs> now let's speak about some of these uh, particular regions and some of the vertebrae. Here we see two thoracic vertebrae, two of them connected, one on top of the other intervertebral disc. You can see the spinous process, which is long and pointing downward. Two lumbar vertebrae connected to each other, where the spinous processes are short and wide. The bodies are very big, wide, and thick. And the cervical vertebrae, some words to say about cervical vertebrae because they are, they are very special. 
The first two, C1 and C2, they have specific names. The C1 is called Atlas, and the C2 is called Axis. And Atlas, because they picked up the name of this titan of Greek mythology, that is holding the world in the shoulders like this, or this C1 is holding the head, and is connected to the occipital condyles of the occipital bone. And C2 comes down, and it's called axis because there is like a little pin that works as pivot and allows the head to turn on the neck. This is how they look, C1 and C2. This atlas is the only one that has no body first cervical vertebrae doesn't have a vertebral body, vertebral body, yeah. The atlas connects to the occipital condyles of the occipital bone. The axis, the C2, has that little ping, pivot, called dens, which actually means tooth. And we can see how they articulate to each other in this photograph. The atlas articulating with the axis and the occipital condyles of the occipital bone, they will connect here. So these two, uh, C1 and C2, are very important. When you say yes, like doing this, flexion extension of the head, is the occipital moving on top of the C1. And when you say no, moving the head lateral, both sides, what happens is the dance, which is like my finger here, and the atlas here, like C, the atlas will move with the occipital bone and the whole head over the dance of the C2 that works as a pivot, like an axis, actually. So that's how these two uh, bones, and that's why I said they're very important. Imagine if you have a fracture of these bones. You won't be able to move the head in either direction. Those are, they have the color here to stabilize here, and they have to be like this for many weeks until this heals. And there's one more thing. What's in the, interver uh, in the vertebral foramen? What's running there inside? In the center? Spinal cord. The spinal cord, if you break these bones and a piece of bone pushes against the spinal cord, you may have serious problems of uh, the nervous system. So that's how we see all these cervical vertebrae, from C1 to C7. C1 is atlas, C2 is axis. All of them have the transverse foramen, the transverse foramen, which only belongs to the cervical vertebrae. And what is that transverse foramen for? Or blood vessel or nerve? In this case, it's a blood vessel. It's called the vertebral artery. Hyperextension or hyperflexion of the neck can bring this type of injuries that are called whiplash injuries and they actually may be very dangerous. You can break the spinal cord at this point. And if you have a section of the spinal cord at this level, 
you will have paralysis of the four limbs. Because here you have all the axons that are coming to the spinal cord and then from the muscles of your four limbs. Thoracic, 12 pairs of uh, 12 thoracic vertebrae. They connect to the ribs, which are right and left. So these are 12 pairs of ribs connect to the thoracic vertebrae. And there's a special part for that connection. We mentioned that it's uh, articular facets. that are found in the transverse uh, processes. The lumbar vertebrae are five, and the reason why the body is so big is because this segment is where the point of equilibrium of the body is. If you make an analysis of all the forces like they do in physics of vectors and directionals and things, well, the point of equilibrium of this particular human body is right there in the lumbar region, and that's why. And besides, there is no ribs here. When the ribs make certain balance and they connect to the limbs and you can balance this, but if you see the skeleton and you see the lumbar region, it's just the lumbar vertebrae that connect the upper part of the body with the lower part. So it's a very unstable area, and these bones have to be very thick, very resistant, and very powerful muscles have to be around. One of the things um, that are related with, uh, with procedures is this procedure called um, lumbar puncture or spinal tap by which we insert a needle and the point is to reach the membranes that are surrounding the spinal cord and retrieve cerebrospinal fluid. To analyze, sometimes there may be infections or some problems that we, we need to see and send a sample to the lab of that fluid. Well, there is a specific window to put the needle through and reach that space, and we have to first feel the spinous processes of all the vertebrae know where the thoracic ends and when the lumbar vertebrae starts. This is supposed to be done in between L1, L2, or L2 and L3. But again, as I said, we are, have to be able to identify that. And if we see this in a diagram, this is what the procedure is, lumbar puncture or spinal tap. It can go between L2, L3, or L3, L4, as we see in this uh, picture the needle is going in between it's going in in between two spinous processes so we have to be able to identify the spinous process and since the lumbar vertebrae they have the spinous process short wide and more horizontal then we are able to insert the needle in between two spinous processes and reach that space uh, around the spinal cord where the liquid or cerebrospinal fluid is Below the lumbar region, we have the sacrum, which is a bone that is a result of fusion of five vertebrae. 
If you see the development, actually they are different vertebrae. But then during the development, they get fused. It turns only one big sacrum, five vertebrae. But you still can tell. You see some lines here. You can identify the different levels, S4, S1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. You can see the foramina or foramina, which are the intervertebral foramina, but transverse process is all, all of them fused. And a posterior view, we can see a crest in the middle, in the midline, which is the result of fusion of all the spinous processes. And why they fuse? Because this is part of the pelvis. It has to provide a stability to the pelvis. And it gets connected to both pelvic bones and uh, uh, it's part of the pelvis. And then below we see the coccyx, where are four or five small vertebrae connected to each other. And finally, it comes the thorax, thoracic cage. We call thoracic cage uh, uh, to this actually kind of cage formed by all the ribs, sternum, and the vertebral column, the thoracic vertebrae. Very important because inside we have the pleural cavity, pericardial cavity, both thoracic cavities. And thoracic cage will protect all these vital organs. And besides, it's a support for the upper limbs. That's what the clavicle connects to. Thoracic cage is important in breathing. There are muscles called respiratory muscles that attach to these bones and make the ribs move in a way that allows normal breathing. And here we have the thoracic cage. How we describe the thoracic cage? Well, anteriorly, we have the sternum in the midline, this bone called the sternum, which has three parts. The manubrium, which is the top part. The body. And the siphoid process, which is a little pointy part, which also can be felt here. If you feel your breastbone go all the way down, you will feel that pointy uh, appendages or appendix called the siphoid process. And from the sternum to the vertebral column, that's where we find the ribs running from 1 to 12. And these ribs are divided. in a group called true ribs, from rib number one to rib number seven. False ribs, eight and 10. And floating ribs, 11 and 12. Why they are called true and why they are called false? True because the ribs are actually not connecting to the sternum bone to bone. There is a cartilage that connects the rib to the sternum. That's called costal cartilage. 
And it's called true rib because every single rib from one to seven, it has its own separate connection to the sternum. True rib, it has its own true cartilage. <coughs> eight, nine, and 10, eight, nine, and 10, they get together in one cartilage, and that cartilage fuses to the cartilage of the rib number seven. So they don't have their true connection. They connect to the seven cartilage. That's the reason they call false. And the floating, 11, 12, the names descri describe this. Floating, no connection at all. And they're shorter than the rest. They're shorter than the rest. So the sternum, also known as the breastbone, has three parts, as we said, the manubrium, the body, and the cyphoid process. We know the costal cartilages, we mentioned them as example of hyaline cartilage. Those are the ones connecting the sternum to the rib. And it's important because the costal cartilage provides elasticity. And thanks to that is that we can expand the volume inside the thoracic cage. This provides is elastic, it's like a plastic thing. Photograph of all this costal cartilage is seen here. And you can count the ribs and see how the eight, the nine, and ten they get fused in one cartilage, and that cartilage connects to the cartilage of the rib number seven. That's why they call false ribs. And 11 and 12 are floating ribs. False ribs. We just explained all this. And thanks to this costal cartilages again, is that we can perform the chest compressions in CPR maneuvers. This is the way that we are supposed to give the chest compressions or massage. We're supposed to depress the costal or the, the, the thoracic cage from one and a half inches to two inches. And that means straighten your arms and all the weight of your body has to lean on the person. Yes. Yeah, we commonly say breaking ribs during CPR, but what happens is dislocation of the costal cartilage. The costal cartilage may dislocate from the sternum, or which is more common, dislocate from the rib. And since all of them are covered with muscles, it dislocates, like let's say this is the cartilage and this is the rib, it dislocates like this, that remains in place like that. Of course, it's painful, it's, uh, it's a dislocation, but uh, sometimes that happens. And you can feel it when you do CPR maneuver sometimes, you do that, and then, then you feel like crack, crack, crack. Well, it's better to have a patient alive with broken ribs, but alive. So but the same sort of break if they were like, in a, like fighters who break their ribs in the rib cage. Is that the same sort of fighter or is it the actual bone? Uh, it depends on the type of force. When the compression goes further two inches, 
then the force will be released in the lateral part of the ribs. And that's when the actual bone breaks. And that's more dangerous because the bone breaks and the pieces of bone are really sharp and they can uh, rip some blood vessels or even get inside and, and injure the lung. So uh, the ribs are shown here. And each individual rib has these markings. The body, which is a long portion that goes around, there is a groove called costal groove that is in the inferior, inferior border of the rib. There's a groove. What for? For blood vessels and nerves. There's an angle, that's where the curve with the ribs makes a sharp turn, especially posteriorly. And facets for connection to the transverse process of the vertebrae and to the body of the vertebrae here, which are located in the head of the rib. And this facet is for connection with the costal cartilage. What did you say the costal groove has? The costal groove houses um, blood vessels and nerves, and they are called the intercostal artery, intercostal vein, and intercostal nerve. Artery, vein, and nerve run there. This is how the ribs work for the respiratory movements. When we breathe in, what happens is we contract some muscles, respiratory muscles, and those muscles pull the ribs. Pull the ribs like the, uh, the handle of these pumps. Lift it, that's how the muscles breathe in. See what happens with your ribs. It gets like lifted like that. If you do that, all the ribs, well, you increase the volume of the thoracic cage. And it makes sense because if you make that movement, the joints are posteriorly in the vertebrae. So if you have the vertebral column here and the ribs here, the, ver the, the ribs will be moving in this way all the time. We're breathing in, breathing out. And that's how the ribs connect to the vertebral column and explain the function during respiration. Now this picture is showing the thoracic cage and a big blood vessel which is in the thoracic cavity called the thoracic aorta. And see how big this blood vessel is. It's coming out of the heart, straight from the heart. And there are many branches in both sides, lateral branches, which are called the intercostal arteries. They come, out of, they come from the aorta. And those are the blood vessels that run in the costal groove of each rib, as you see in that, in that picture. And it comes all around all around and connects to another artery that runs anteriorly called the internal mammary arteries. And why I bring this? Because it's always, we always have to remember that when we see chest injuries, uh, ribs broken. Uh, because as I was saying, if you break a rib, actual, the actual bone, well the piece of the broken bone may just cut these blood vessels, the intercostal vessels. And they may have, the patients come with hematomas here, with bruises all over. You see a hematoma there, that's probably a broken rib. And that's a piece of rib breaking the, um, 
the intercostal artery. As we see here, you see this bruise here? That's probably because of a broken rib. And the piece of the bone broke and is ripping one of the arteries and uh, you have that, that bruise or collection of blood there. And another thing is, you see this person has a tube connected. That's called a chest tube. And that tube is inserted into the thoracic cavity around the lung. When there is, probably this guy had a broken ribs and one of the pieces of ribs broke uh, inside and lacerated the lung, injured the lung. So we need to evacuate that blood. We need to get rid of that blood inside, otherwise the lung is not expanding. And we need to put a tube inside. And we need to put that tube in between two ribs. But we don't want to cut the intercostal arteries during the procedure. We know that these intercostal arteries are running in the costal groove, which is in the inferior border of the rib. So I'm gonna put my needle in my tube, not close to the inferior border because I'm gonna hit the artery. I'm gonna put it on the superior border of the rib. That's another importance of knowing this as part of the anatomy. Because you don't see that in the patient. You just touch the rib and you have to put the needle. Where do I put it? Top of the rib or below the rib? Put it on top, you're not gonna hurt any blood vessels you're getting in. That's what is shown here. This tube and the trocar, the needle, is being inserted on the superior border of the rib. And you can see below the rib, these little three circles that represent the artery, the vein, and the nerve. And the needle is not touching those. It's going far from them. All right, that was the thoracic cavity and the description of the axial skeleton. Next week, we are going to see all these bones in the lab, and all the lab will be for axial skeleton. I'm going to post a list of bones uh, before the weekend, so you can prepare next time for the lab. Okay, so see you later, 530.